So, uh, <clears throat> I had a suggestion yesterday that we read a passage from Savitri on page 710. So, I will take that up and then after that, um, if there is any question or anything else. Uh, <clears throat> so, what we read just now, of course, is the nightmare in which humanity is caught up and uh, it's something very interesting that um, normally mystics, uh, saints, seers, they soar towards the light and uh, Shurabindo is plunging himself into the night. It's a very interesting poem of Shurabindo, the pilgrim of the night. Who does a pilgrimage to the night but the Lord himself to uncover and it's a very beautiful poem which whose last few lines are uh, <clears throat> I made an assignation with the night in the abyss was fixed our rendezvous carrying in my breast God's deathless light I came a dark and dangerous heart to woe so he made a pilgrimage to the night because what is concealed there as we read yesterday is are the seeds of light so he's gone to rescue those seeds of light to wake up the divine who is sleeping in the inconscient mother describes this experience beautifully so that's why he had to undertake this journey and once the clearing takes place and a firm base is established then the seed sprouts up and we have a new creation. So it's a process and we saw some of the marked differences between the new creation and the old creation. The old creation is based on the ego and therefore everybody lives for themselves and for a part, alone. Whereas the new creation is a creation centered around the divine. This is the fundamental difference. And the divine self in oneself and in all, not just the divine self in me. So I <coughs> seek my own salvation. It's about the divine self which is there in creation, manifesting itself, expressing itself. So Savitri does this tapasya and eventually seeks the boon for earth. That yes, there should be a new creation upon earth. All the creations so far have been a creation in ignorance, in darkness. Always they are subject to being pulled down into what we know as pralayas. So pralaya like death is a, like individual death is you progress, then after a while, the form, the structures, the institution, uh, well, individually it's not the institution, but the, uh, the mind, the systems, the beliefs in which we are caught is unable to progress further. We get trapped, as it were. And so the soul must leave this body and this limited personality, which we call as ourselves, and take a new form, in new circumstances, new surroundings, go through a new experience. Similarly, at a collective level, this happens with nations, it happens with civilizations, it happens with ages of mankind, that they progress up to a point, and then the forms, the institutions, the religions, the beliefs through which humanity has reached, after a while it becomes counterproductive. It's unable to progress further. And so it collapses. What happens individually happens collectively, and then... Everything seems to be destroyed except the essence, just like individual death, the essence remains. So the essence remains the experience that humanity has gained during this passage. 
returns back and there is a new blossoming. That's how there is the conception of four yogas and the mother speaks of six pralayas which have already taken place and this is the seventh creation. Very strangely even science speaks about it. <laughs> there is six, five or six ice ages which are like pralayas and then you know once again it comes, comes back and um, so we are in the seventh creation, a creation where um, as it is, this darkness will not, uh, will keep on progressing and will not pull back the creation for good. It will be a progress towards the light till we cross a certain point after which there is a journey from light to greater light, freedom to greater freedom, joy to greater joy. So this is the promise and the prophecy the boon that Mother and Shubhinda have secured for earth and what we are going to read is just the last page of this boon it runs into several pages and um, we'll start a little bit from page 709 and then go to 710 because you know it, it forms a continuation <clears throat> now one of the beauty of this uh, yoga is uh, one that at least personally fascinated me was its collective teacher. It's not about individual salvation. Often when we turn to God, it's basically about me and my life. So we reinforce the ego self. So what's the point of that? That has been going on since ages. My bliss, my salvation, my nirvana. Uh, that's been happening. Also when we speak about collective... Um, the redemption of mankind is not about forming a new religion. Mother is very particular about that. We are not here to form a new religion. That you know, okay, now there are a number of people who are having this belief and that's good. No, belief is not good. Realization. Belief can be a starting point. It's okay. But what is important is to realize this truth. And when we realize and more and more people realize while being on earth in a human body, while dealing with life, we will see there is a change in the way we look at life, the way we understand life and the way we deal with life all around us. So as we change within, Shubindo very beautifully defined spirituality, essentially it's a change of consciousness. So we exchange the human consciousness and get in return the divine consciousness. By offering the human consciousness to the divine, the divine in return gives the divine consciousness to us. So we create an empty space he fills that empty space by his presence. And that's what I keep saying. This is the oldest version of demonetization. Okay, so you give back the old notes and you get the new currency. So the old currency is all the power and strength and knowledge of the ego, ego self. And the new currency is the divine grace, divine light, divine peace, divine harmony, divine bliss. And something which no human power and no human effort can grant us. So we read something from that. On page 709, this is the collective realization of which Shurabindu speaks towards the end. <clears throat> the background is first he describes about the coming of the superman. The new being with a new consciousness. And then what this superman will do, it will lift up man. And then man and superman will become a single life. This is the where he speaks about the individual realization. And then he goes on, page 709. Um, 
the line is 1380 even the multitude shall hear the voice now this voice which speaks and bids us to rise and wake up to the change even the many now uh, it's not something which has to be announced outwardly but something which will happen within the human heart this and turn to commune with the spirit within and strive to obey the high spiritual law so this we can see that the present age after the great descent into night which we saw during the first great war and the second great war i don't think humanity ever has seen that kind of darkness the first half of the previous century of course all of us feel our own little span of life and the issues we face are the ultimate issues but if you just look back from 1900 to 1950 when mother and shivindu are on earth uh, whether you see in terms of uh, imperialism or um, you know a hardcore marxism or <coughs> all positivism freudian psychoanalysis as the ultimate way to understand life uh, superstition every which way one looks at it uh, and of course the two great wars where uh, i i don't think all the asuras and rakshasas put together in uh, indian and western mythology cannot make uh, for one hitler <laughs> and uh, you know it's it's amazing the darkest hour uh, you see the freedom when when india got freedom it's the darkest hour you know it's just unimaginable so from that point onwards we touched rock bottom and now we are climbing up so this is just to put the background and one of the things that is happening which is very interesting and unique is turning towards uh, the spiritual impulsion you know all over the world this phenomena is happening in some way or the other in america there was a very interesting article and the article was of course it's not a good way to title it are we all turning hindus now the reason was that <laughs> there was a study now hindu we associate with certain rituals customs but that's just the external part that's not the core of hinduism Uh, core of hinduism is first the belief in the that there is a divine and this divine is expressing upon earth that's what dharma means and then this uh, idea about many lives the idea that through many paths you can approach the one anybody it's not an exclusive way of life so there are many aspects many ways through which one can approach the one now world over people are beginning to believe in this so uh, it's, it doesn't matter whether one goes to a temple or not or does offer a coconut or not god is quite pleased without the coconut i am sure and probably he is more pleased because it shouldn't you know make the place dirty but the important part is that the way humanity is changing it's beginning to seek the spirit in various ways it's feeling constrained and constricted within all that it has experienced till now and it wants to know something more something greater and that's that aspiration is awakened upon earth this earth shall stir with impulses sublime many movements we see happening whether it be the movement towards world unity world peace so always we should not associate spirituality with somebody using the word spirit spirit doesn't care about the word we use it cares about what's happening inside the heart that's what the mother repeatedly reminds us that one may be very spiritual without following any of the typical practices with which we associate that this man is you know uh, it it sees that little thing which is happening inside uh, there was a very interesting question someone asked um, 
Not only that, there is a whole article on this. He was asked why Arjuna was given the Gita. So if you look at Arjuna, he is not the most ideal person. He is, you know, there were better people. Yudhishthir was very truthful, truthful to a default, if one may say so. Then there is Bhishma, who is, you know, Jnani. And there are many others, Karna, the Danvir, Vidur, the Mahatma, many sages and saints. But why Arjuna? Now the beauty of Arjuna is he has that humility to turn towards the divine and say, look, I don't know how to deal with my life and the issues and the problems and, you know, I have to face this battle. You tell me what I should do and I'm going to listen to you. He is seeking a spiritual law, not a moral or ethical law. There's the big difference between spiritual life and human life. The highest of human life is a religious, moral or ethical law. We can't go beyond it, but divine acts in freedom. That's why he is anantike jnani, he is anant, infinite. And how to discover that law? In Ishu Upanishad, we have this famous verse where Jnanavalki is aspiring for this law. Hiran mayena patrena satya syapihita mukham tattvam pushanna pavranu satya dharmaya drishtes. Reveal to me what truth wants of me, not what my mind says or my mind wants. So this aspiration we see in Arjuna, he's, but he is so fortunate. Because Krishna is right there. We all have the Krishna inside, but we need to seek him. So, we see that earth is stirring with these impulses sublime. It's wanting to break free from all that it has known. And we see that many old measures of society are falling apart. So, many people feel, oh, this is bad. But actually, this is the beginning of a new curve of evolution. Because unless the old measures go, the new cannot find space to come in. So, this earth shall stir with impulses sublime. Humanity awake to deepest self, nature the hidden Godhead recognize, even the many shall some answer make and bear the splendor of the divine's rush and his impetuous knock at unseen doors. It's a beautiful line. Whom will he come and wake up? As we said, Arjuna on the battlefield, is that a place to... Talk about dharma and immortality. Normally we think, you know, it should be a satsangar or some, you know, religious place where it suits. But divine has a sense of humor. And that's what we need to appreciate. So the Gita starts with this strange irony. Gita is, one of the definitions of the Gita is, it's a song of immortality. Where is this song of immortality being given? Just imagine the situation. Where is Arjuna being initiated? Not in some cave, not in some uh, ashrama, not in some, you know, place where he is sitting quietly and a mantra is being given. The highest mantra that humanity could imagine, every verse of Gita is a mantra, is being given to a person who wants to go in for a battle. And all around there is nothing but dance of death. And he is being initiated to the song of immortality. You know, it is so significant that when we are in deepest crisis, there is an unseen door within us. And that the divine knocks, may I come in? And we say, no, 901. I don't know what's the number here. But, you know, <laughs> in India now it's 108. At least 108 is good. You know, I like the num number. I don't know who chose it. <laughs> so in India we have an emergency number. You have 108. So ambulance. So at least you get a nice feeling. <laughs> Sacred number. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, we don't have to go beyond one. The number worth calling is one. There is a tremendous power in that one. doesn't matter what name, which way you call. Because he is always knocking. Unseen door. Where are we looking for all the doors outside? But there is a door inside 
where he is knocking. You know, this uh, is a beautiful poem of Shurabindo, The Dream Boat. Mm. It's a very touching poem. Maybe sometimes worth reading. The divine is going and knocking at all the doors. And he's coming in a dream boat and he's asking, would you come with me? Would you come with me? So, Shurabindo writes as, you know, he's the author, poet. He's identifying with that state of consciousness where man says, uh, well, you want to take me, where do you want to take me, show me your identity card, are you really God, and uh, show me your agenda, show me your, you know, profile, everything. And he doesn't have time to wait, you know. He says, okay, you weigh, he's weighing, what will I lose, what will I gain? And the dream boat passes away. And then he says, I enter into a strange state. Now the world's hollow, where there was joy in everything, now it has become hollow. And I am waiting for the dream boat to come, but it's not coming. It's like I am waiting for the gold god to come back. So when there is a knock of the divine, there has to be a response from the human soul. And he's describing that now there is a time when there will be response. And the response comes most unexpectedly. Even the many shall some answer me. This is the important part. Often people say, why is you know God not coming to us? The divine comes. Problem is we don't open. So he is a little bit of a shy creature. So he doesn't force open the door. Also because he forces open, uh, we'll be smashed into pieces because it's tremendous power. So he waits for us to open the door. Even the many shells some answer make and hear and bear the splendor of the divine's rush. So there is this bearing. The word is bear. It's not easy. It's easy to call the divine, but very difficult to bear the splendor. Once someone asked the mother about delight, not only supermind, they had called down delight to manifest because this world is created for delight, but nobody was ready. So they asked the mother that what would be really make man ready? She said it's a near impossible condition until truth completely takes hold of man. So Shurabindo's supramental consciousness is meant to prepare us for the delight. It's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a new tale where we are ready to bear the delight. And the conditions he gave was a complete freedom from seeking any kind of pleasure. Human consciousness. <laughs> that would be. So truth is going to ensure that through various ways till we finally are ready to bear the delight. A heavenlier passion shall upheave men's lives their mind shall share in the ineffable gleam. Their heart shall feel the ecstasy and the fire. Earth's bodies shall be conscious of a soul. The soul is within, but we are not conscious. Therefore, it turns into a just a belief. And that's why this mere belief doesn't help. So when people pass away, we cry and we feel distressed. We all know, there is rebirth, we all know that, you know, this is not the end of the journey, but we still cry and we feel bad. Why do we feel bad? Because we don't see the soul. That's ignorance. As long as it's just a belief, it doesn't help. When we see the soul, imagine a scenario where one actually sees that, well, oh yes, that's he's going, he's hovering around saying bye-bye. And we say, okay, bon adieu, have a nice journey, safe flight. And come back home to do the work. It will be a different story. It's the ignorance which makes such a big to do about death. Because we just don't know. We know it somewhere as a belief. But still we see. 
mother describes an experience countless experiences one of them was the very child had died now a child's death is a traumatic very traumatic death and the parents come to mother they have come with some flowers which they want to give to the mother this is the parents side of the story they don't know what's happening they have come to get some solace mother describes how that soul of the child comes and so happy and it just picks up one flower and wants to give that to the mother and she says uh, parents are still wondering and she says this child comes and wants me to wants this flower to be given to me and she she says if i tell this to the parents they won't understand because they don't know they don't see but there is another vision where it's a different story altogether going on the person is happy to pass on to other fields and come back in a new body for the greater adventure but we who are staying behind suffer so this ignorance how will it go when we become conscious of the soul and not just we are the body will become conscious of the soul means the body will spontaneously make the right gesture in life and the right response at present it is not earth's body shall be conscious of a soul mortality's bond slaves shall lose their bonds mere men into spiritual beings grow so mortality's bond slaves we are and there are three bonds that tie us as described in one of the vedic stories of sunya sheep so sunya sheep is tied with three bonds and uh, he calls various rishis that cut the bond and they nobody wants to cut the bond and then he invokes varuna so varuna come varuna is the god of vastness so see the bonds are narrowness <laughs> and he is the god of vastness so he cuts these three bonds cuts the upper bond and throws it up cuts the central bond and throws it around cuts the lower bond and throws it below now these three bonds are referring to the bonds of the mind life and the body bodily self so mind it's constricted so it cuts the bond and throws it above enter into vastness into wideness into light into freedom into infinity then the bond that constrict life surrounded around the ego cuts it and throws it all around so it enters into a cosmic consciousness where it begins to include all creatures as part of one's own self as we were reading yesterday that my rival's downfall is my own disgrace i look at my enemy and see krishna's face so this is the consciousness where whatever is happening in another creature begins to you begin to experience that that pain not the way human consciousness experiences but in very different way even treading on on a flower even you know matter if one deals with it unconsciously there is a beautiful prayer of the mother when she leaves paris she prays for the objects that you have served me so beautifully and um, may when you pass into new hands may they treat you consciously look at uh, what kind of spirituality is it that uh, dealing with matter and objects of everyday use whether it be plate or glass or pen or everyday life she is dealing with them consciously and she is praying that when other people use them may they be as gentle may they be as kind because you are conscious people are not conscious about what's happening to us but deep inside you also have the same consciousness so when we begin to live this way our life the body itself its habit its belief in death all this subconscious grip being thrown down 
this is a belief. We are grown, we must die, we must grow old, we must fall sick. And we all inherit it. Among the many things we inherit, uh, one of this is the belief system. Body has to, you know, degenerate. And now people are beginning to challenge this notion. Uh, it's, it's strangely happening in scientific quarters. It should happen in spiritual quarters because spirituality is about immortality. You know, there is a trust that there is an immortal self within. But in, in at least scientists are beginning to say that there is a possibility that we need not die. Though, of course, as yesterday we were discussing, uh, that's not the ultimate. It will prolong life. It's not immortality is the wrong word because as long as we are made of tissue, which is subject to degeneration, there will be death. It will find a door. But yes, we can prolong life, which is a good thing. Every little conquest over death is a wonderful thing. It gives us more space, more time. Most of us, unfortunately, I mean, of course, this is very nice that everybody is uh, young uh, in some way or the other and has turned towards uh, spiritual life. But Mother says it's, it's a tragedy of life that around 60, we come to know what is the way to live life. And by then we feel, oh, we have already lived, uh, lived our lives. It's time to apply for the graveyard or the, you know, Shamshan Ghat. But instead we should say, ah, now I have learnt all my mistakes apart. Now I can live life anew. And then she says that at 80 life blossoms. So, <laughs> now is the blossoming. Now life blossoms. Now you, you really know everything and it, all the possibilities, all the potential, all the beauty of life must emerge and begin to impact. And that's how it should be. But as of now, because the way matter and is still under the hard grip of the unconscious, it doesn't. But slowly, this faith in death, this belief in death, disease, infirmity that we unconsciously and unwittingly put into is being loosened. Otherwise, you know, as human beings, we lived a very frightening life, frightened life all the time. And doctors make us even more frightened. You go with a small problem and it, you come back with a big bill and a bigger problem. You just had a headache. And you here, here there is a word they call no worry. Ah, Anything no. you tell, no ah, worry. No worry. After that, you see the, of course, you have an insurance. After that, you see the bill and you see the diagnosis. And then you have Mr. Google to, you know, back up what the doctor has missed, the Google will tell you. And then you wonder, oh my God, I thought it just a headache. I have hypertension with all the complications. I may get paralyzed, I may have a heart attack, gone. So, you know, we have, uh, this is how we become bond slaves. You know, one of the things mother said is the worst kind of impurity that binds us is fear. All the time fear. No confidence in the grace, no confidence, at least in ourselves. So Yogananda would say, have faith in yourself at least. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with that fear, we are going all around life. This may happen, that may happen. And the result is, you know, life becomes so constricted. And see awake the dumb divinity. So the dumb divinity is what? Matter itself is divine. And it must wake up. It must become conscious. Intuitive beams shall touch the nature's peaks. A revelation stir the nature's depths. 
Uh, this has been happening since early 1900 we see that there is a change taking place in the there is a paradigm shift everybody is speaking about it in the way human thought was shaping itself in fact uh, i often narrate this story in the field of science where in physics when in 1900 the science congress declared that we have known we know everything about everything except two things and that was the black body radiation and the uh, measuring the stars and once we know it we'll know everything and when this was known in that very year it changed the whole idea of science we entered into quantum world we entered into relativity and you know it stayed into the beams around the same time or maybe 10 years here and there jc was declared there will plants of life they are conscious they they you know they they not only breathe and respire they can feel they can sense now these are um, great discoveries whose impact we may not uh, you know be able to understand at this point of time but this idea that everything is conscious this is you know uh, coming up uh, maybe around 20 years back when i was reading a series of articles 25 years back when i had a deep interest in consciousness vis-a-vis the mind brain all this intellectual stuff so the opinion was 50% tilted in favor of consciousness being primary and 50% that brain is the thing though it sounded absurd that means that where there is no brain there is no consciousness it was an absurdity but well the experiments <laughs> and today there is a bulk of evidence shifting in another direction that well consciousness is the fundamental reality so why it is happening because there is a new thought which is awakening in humanity whose far of impact we we are yet to see the truth shall be the leader of their lives truth shall dictate their thought and speech and act so gone are the days when we told children tell the uncle who has come at the door that papa is not there <laughs> child say what are you asking me <laughs> go and touch uncle's feet no i don't respect that uncle he will touch if he feels respect and doesn't have to touch he says i i have respect why should i do this it's not necessary because truth is here it's not about you know very often this becomes an act of deception we were reading upon uh, in the world of uh, falsehood just you know the passage we read collectively truth speaking was a stratagem in that place their truth was a lie and lie a truth that's the kind of life we have lived in self deception but that age is gone so children speak out their mind freely they don't care whether you like it or you don't like it but they must speak very often i don't know how the situation here but in india it's a revolution so children tell we are not asking you we are informing you we are telling you honestly and truthfully we are not taking your permission just telling you isn't it it's, it's something i feel it's a good sign because you know they are speaking truth they are not saying that papa i am going to the temple and then say ah good <laughs> now this is i am going for a party and you say pita you should have gone to a temple no i don't feel like going it's a far greater honesty which people are developing being honest to oneself is a way of beginning to be a way of life fear is going away so truth speaking here comes to the truth shall be the leader of their lives truth shall dictate their thought and speech and act also the sign of really a evolved being it's not about externalities it's not whether he is wearing a gerua vastra or wearing a white cloth and you know speaking out the scriptures and wearing we read about scripture no that 
he armed logic with scripture and used scripture to, to perpetuate. It's nothing to do with that. The Veda is written in the heart. And what does it teach? Very simple things. Love, truth, harmony. This is the Veda which teaches. Beauty, peace. And wherever we see that express, he is a Veda knower. He may not have read a single book. It's not important. So this comes from here. You know, truth, to speak the truth. When mother was asked, uh, she said that before dying, falsehood rises to its swing. So what is the remedy? She said truth. And she, she qualified it. Truth in speech. Truth in actions. Truth in feelings. So truth in actions means we are not doing something out of merely trying to please someone or trying to make a show. And what do today's children dislike most? The word is hypocrisy. They use this word, no? Hypocrisy. I want to be a hypocrite. Now what is happening here? We see that there is a action of truth which is taking place. They don't want to be hypocrite. They want to be what they are and they express it uh, very beautifully. So, they shall feel themselves lifted nearer to the sky as if a little lower than the gods. And of course, uh, this lifted lower than the gods as if is only the beginning. Uh, man is meant to ascend beyond the gods. That's why all the old typical places of worship are going to sooner or later run out of business because the new creation will feel the presence of the divine here. You know, there was a, there is a famous story of Anusuya uh, in, in the Indian scripture where she just, what does she do? What is her yoga? She just loves her husband wholeheartedly. One pointed in love. She doesn't care. Of course, husband is a great guy. But still, you know, Atri Rishi. But she has that love. And look what this power of love can do. So when the gods come to test her, because Narada, you know, tells them that, you know, you people think you are great. There is a lady on earth, she is greater than you. So they want to test her. And she turns them into little babies when they make a very unreasonable demand. And when they come looking for their Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh, she says, look, they are sleeping in the cot. Please pick your guy up and take them. <laughs> So mother was very happy with this story. She said it's so true because human beings have a psychic presence. Therefore they can directly connect with the Supreme. They don't need to go through the zigzag of the gods. So this is something very marvelous about human beings that they can be uh, go greater than the gods. Then she was asked, but then why did human beings fall so low? She said because one thing they must learn because before they can be lifted high is humility. So, so... This, we struggle, we pray here, we go there because uh, the moment the intellect is filled with great light and uh, other parts improve, we begin to believe it's all me. Like the gods of the Kena Upanishad, then we become arrogant. So obviously with arrogance we can't go. So the lesson of humility. For knowledge shall pour down in radiant streams. And even darkened mind quiver with new life and kindle and burn with the ideal's fire and turn to escape from mortal ignorance. So knowledge as you know we, know we know is knowledge in spiritual life is not about um, reading a book or analyzing it well and you know uh, using the intellectual pro processes of cognition. Knowledge descends from above. That's how the Rishi spoke about the Sapt Sindhu and the Sapt Nadia. 
the seven sacred rivers of Indian thought. They are the seven streams of knowledge that as the mind opens up, they descend and have a cleansing and purifying and rejuvenating action. So it's about knowledge descending from above, intuitive beams. The next cycle is going to be an intuitive cycle and man is going to lose paradoxically the extreme analytical faculties. And that's why we see a phase when it is hyper using it. And the means that he has created by hyper using these faculties will be the means with which he will lose it. And we know all these inventions. Hyper using the mental faculty, analytical faculty. Extreme result, now you don't use your mental faculties. So it's all part of the game. And then when this goes down, there will be the awakening of intuition. And this intuition is going to lead. So this is a prophecy of the future. And uh, those who are experiencing these things can begin to see that it's already happening. It's right around the corner. The frontiers of the ignorance shall recede. More and more souls shall enter into light. Minds lit inspire the occult summoner here. The beautiful line. One is, of course, the frontiers of the ignorance. Yobindu speaks about the sevenfold ignorance. We don't know who we are. We don't know what this world is. We don't know about any divine reality. And we are covered. We don't know about our own past. We don't know about our future. There is this whole ignorance that surrounds us. Now, if you really look at it, people have begun to even explore something like past life. It's amazing. How is it that in a field of hardcore science, people are beginning to explore past life? People are exploring near-death experiences. And authentically, those accounts are being given. There is something beyond the field of death. So, these frontiers of ignorance are receding. And more and more, we are beginning to enter into an age of light. But here comes this line about the occult summoner. So, we have a beautiful image in the Bhagavat where Krishna is playing the flute. And many are sleeping. But the gopis are awake. The gop and the gopis. And they rush. Now, this is the image of the occult summoner, the one who is reminding us, who is calling us within the heart. Now, it's whatever number we are here today. And you can um, multiply it with any number of persons all around the world. It's very interesting. People often ask that, uh, what is the way of initiating in Shurabindu's Yoga? Who will initiate us? They're looking for some traditional way of, you know, some human guru is there, some gaddi is going on, and you go there and he will say, okay, fine, now you are initiated, he'll give a mantra. And you are initiated. This doesn't happen in this Yoga. Because this Yoga is based, the whole thing is revolutionized. And this is based on something much deeper and higher. So, <coughs> How do you get initiated? Shabinda was asked, he said, you have the call for the path. Now it's very strange. Who called? Now each of us, I am sure, has our story. Is it true or not? Yes. And isn't it a unique story? No two stories are alike. It's strange that even when we have been connected, but there comes a time when there is a reconnection and we know, oh, now, now it's my journey. Up till now it was my parents and I just believed in it. Now suddenly it's my journey. And it's a call for the path. Now this call is what is called as the occult summoner. He's calling us. But there comes a time when we respond. And when that happens, then it is initiation on the yoga. So we don't have to 
think about that, okay, whether I am initiated or not, if there is a call for the path, we are initiated. And why the call has come? Because the divine has called us from within and we have heard the call and we have woken up and started walking with the pilgrim staff of faith. <clears throat> and lives blaze with a sudden inner flame and hearts grow enamored of divine delight. We are enamored of sorrow. It's not a path of sorrow. Shabindo's yoga, you know, the path of self-imposed suffering and this old time conception that if a person is sleeping on a bed of nails, he is doing a great yoga. It's an asurik tapasya. It's a path of joy because the one towards whom we are going is all delightful. The sign of progressing in yoga is an increase in joy. Increase in harmony, increase in peace. In fact, if there is sorrow and suffering coming in, that means somewhere I am insincere. Something is amiss. Somewhere I have put a veil between me and that. So, hearts ablaze with a sudden flame, flame of aspiration. Where does it come from? We all have our moments, no? when we suddenly feel that deep aspiration. Of course, if this aspiration must grow, it must become intense, 1.8, sustained through. But how does this come? Suddenly, one day, Aspiration sometimes takes a form, I want to be yours mother. Isn't it? You experience this. I love you, I want to belong to you. Who asked us? Some, someone once asked me that what is the miracle you see in Shurabindu Ashram. I said there are plenty but one I can tell you. I don't know why we fall in love with a great heavenly lady whom we have never seen with our physical eyes. Normally that's not the way we love people. <laughs> and not only you fall in love, if you were to put all the love, human love and every other love on one side and a drop of that love, we still value that love. Why? I know many of us here may not have had the rare privilege of having seen the Divine Mother, but somewhere we know that Divine Mother has seen us. That's what is important. So this itself, you know, when, when life is ablaze with a sudden inner flame, where does this conviction spring from? People ask this question. No, there is no living guru. Well, what we have is something more than a living guru. You depend on a living guru by writing a letter and seeking out a guidance. We know she is there. How do you know it? Well, I know it. <laughs> That's the end of the story. And so wonderful that, you know, inner summoner. And human wills tuned to the divine will. This is the secret of a beautiful life and a, you know, in one word. What is the law of living by truth? Man walks with in ignorance, we erect artificial standards of living. The first standard is my ego. What pleases me, I am going to do that. What I like, I want to do that. That's the first standard of living. It has its own validity because, well, ego self is the first structure around which life hovers. Next is society. I don't do according to my wishes, I do according to society. That's collective ignorance. But nevertheless, it teaches our ego self to subordinate. Or there are religious laws, moral laws, all erected by some here or there. Now, when we begin to look for the law within, okay, all these are there, but still something is amiss. I often give this, ex this example because in the Indian context, it was regarded as sacred to obey the parents. Isn't it? So people ask me, I said, well, uh, the great Gita by which we swear everywhere, it starts by disobeying your, <laughs> your own kith and kin. 
because it's not parents or grandparents or teachers, but truth that we have to obey. That's the message of the Gita. So, you know, but still we end up, Rama himself with whom we swear, obeyed truth <laughs> rather than anything else. Sita obeyed truth. So this is the way they have passed before us. And to obey truth is far more difficult. It's far easier to follow a moral, ethical, religious or social law because, you know, uh, we are now not responsible for anything that happens. Even if there is catastrophe happening, we still say, no, no, no. My parents want, um, uh, what is it called? What Dowry. So I am only obeying their wish. What kind of wish? <laughs> well, I am obeying. So I am doing right thing according to the scriptures. No scripture has said that and there is anything greater than truth. So truth shall be the leader. And this is happening in human beings. That's why we see revolt all around because human beings are breaking the frames of uh, convention, tradition, society in which the soul was trapped from its free ex expansion. There was a time when these things were necessary and now they are becoming dated. They will reach their expiry date. So what happens? The same medicine when you take after expiry date, then it becomes harmful. So expiry date has come. Now truth, true medicine. <laughs> so, so we have this, uh, our will tuning to the divine will. That's the standard. <clears throat> These separate selves, the spirit's oneness feel. Wonderful line. What is the basis of unity? It is not mental adjustment. You know, I have seen some interfaith dialogues. And you know what happens after the interfaith dialogue? Then there is, let's say, man who believes in X religion, then Y religion and Z religion. So after it is over, the X religion goes back to his people and say, How was it? Do you think it was impressive enough? Have I been able to convert? Now, this is not interfaith dialogue. It cannot happen. <laughs> so, what is the solution? To grow into the self, which is one. There is a very beautiful story of the mother, uh, which she recounts as somebody's story. Someone goes back from India and they said, oh, this story in Paris, setting is in Paris, intellectual circles. Oh, you are coming from India, coming from India, yes. So half mockingly. So I believe they speak about soul and uh, they count souls. How many souls are there? Mockingly. How many souls are there? And this person stretches out one finger and says one. One. One in many bodies. And that's a much better ground to connect with. To forget that we are coming from this region, that region, this, this country, this religion. How is it important? That deep within we are all having the same aspiration towards beauty, light, truth, the joy of life, peace, harmony. This is the same aspiration. And we connect at that level. So this is the oneness uh, towards which we have to grow. This is a prophecy. It also shows us the path towards the future. These senses of heavenly sense grow capable. What is a heavenly sense? Um, someone was narrating the other day that, you know, goes to the ashram and was sitting at the samadhi and felt as if the mother touched the head. So the person asked, there have been experiences like that and people asking, Shurabindu, is it true? He said, these are the first experiences that come. And if you begin to doubt them, how will the greater experiences that are waiting come? <laughs> I, I saw a light as if it's going inside. Is it true? Are this is how it starts. 
how are we feeling it by heavenly sense by another order of sense these gross senses don't feel it because they are not tuned to it you can't play tabla on hard rock you will only injure your hands it's not capable of you know you may have music inside but you can't play it you have to prepare the instruments so a time comes when these senses which are under the spell of gross matter they are released and then they begin to experience so when people say divine presence so what do we say yes i feel it how do you feel it prove it <laughs> well i can tell you how you can feel it <laughs> that's the closest i can come and i know it because there is joy and peace inside so this is that touch of that there is love inside so how do we feel the divine presence by another sense than this earthly sense because earthly senses are not meant to make us come in contact unless they are transmuted so very often we have a crude logic i don't see god so god doesn't exist so the only reply to that crude crude logic is i didn't see my grandfather i actually didn't by the way so he didn't exist how did you come into existence somehow i came into existence god knows how <laughs> you know this is the this crude logic has only this answer well there are people who saw whom i trust and they have given me a way by which i can arrive at it let me walk the way and discover or say at the end of it that well nothing exists because i walked the way fulfilling the conditions in sincerity and found nothing then i am correct scientifically but to a priori deny now here comes that these senses of heavenly sense grow capable why we don't feel because our senses are not tuned we have this thing in the gita that suddenly there is the vishwarup darshan to arjuna it's a special grace arjuna's eyes are not tuned but there is a moment of apocalypse when he suddenly tells krishna who are you i don't know whom i am speaking to i felt you are a friend and you know i used to put my arms around you i don't know what all i have spoken to you of course krishna smiles and says inside that's what i love i like to be a friend you people put me on a pedestal puts all these agarbattis and all this mala and it must be stifling have you ever thought you are feeding me so much sweets and if i have diabetes uh, i love to be a friend he is the eternal playmate and friend so but nevertheless he says show me who you are what you are speaking i have never heard all this from you see he has concealed himself and then when he reveals even arjuna the warrior is frightened he says no 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 please dilute yourself i can't see this form it's a description you know i think yesterday we were uh ha ah, in the music we were playing anek adbhut darshanam anek it was from the gita where there is the darshan of shri krishna in his vishwarup and initially arjun is just wonderstruck and then he says no i can't behold it i am feeling afraid <laughs> so He, you bring back your uh, pleasant chatur bhujrup you know <laughs> my limit is that much uh, so that's how he changes now this is the interesting part that basically we cannot see the divine because our senses are not tuned we cannot hear the divine music simply because our ears are not tuned and why they are not tuned because they are all the time engaged with everything else except this so the day the aspiration awakes in the eyes and the ears that no enough of these voices of the world media has been blaring out let me hear for once the flute enough of these sights which enthrall me and bind me i want to see thy face 
enough of these touches. I want to feel your kiss and your embrace. When this aspiration wakes up in the senses, they get transmuted. So our senses of heavenly sense grow capable. These senses, the flesh and nerves of a strange ethereal joy and mortal bodies of immortality, the flesh and nerves. So this is the bodily transformation of which he is speaking in time to come. Mothers said a thousand years for it to really discover. But more and more I see it. This is an experience which people can have. They are having where the flesh and nerve can feel the touch like a thrill going down. A joy which no other earthly pleasure can give. So how is it happening? So that's how the, the body with this repeated contact with the divine consciousness will undergo it progressive transformation in time to come and the mortal body will become conscious of immortality so you'll see I will forget to die why should I die I don't want to die <coughs> I want to stay young but why not to flatter my ego that people would say ah how young you are because I want to serve the Lord I want to discover the Lord so I must stay young and energetic and uh, have a long life that's how the Isha Upanishad puts it. Very interesting, you know, that third sloka of the Isha Upanishad. Kurvan nevehe karmani jiji visheshatang sama. May we live for a hundred years doing verily works in the world. What a profound, tremendous, powerful way of thought. Rather than, oh, now I am retired. I, I think I want to retreat into an ashrama and sit quietly, pass away quietly. Shivinda would remind us, there is no rest for the embodied soul. It must go on the march. <coughs> A divine force shall flow through tissue and cell. Right now our cells are like batteries. We all know that. And they get charged by food and breath. They need this, you know, to water, to charge these cells. Because they are not the solar batteries. They are lithium ion and you know old time alkaline batteries. But they have to be charged in such a way. They are, they are changing. Actually there are scientifically some people are discovering that there is a core of light and they have nothing to do incidentally with Shurabindo and his yoga. So that there is a core of light. The mitochondria is changing. Many such things. But that's a different field altogether. The cellular substance is changing and becoming more and more responsive to what we may use the word as divine Shakti. Up till now, we were the cells, the body was running on coal engine. That's why it was throwing a lot of smoke and the Gadi used to fail after some distance. Then steam engine. Then came electrical, diesel, electrical and now we have solar engine. So these cells are going to undergo a change and they will be driven by the divine Shakti. So how to do that? By opening them more and more to the divine Shakti. By an aspiration in the physical. The sign of that aspiration is when she was asked that how do we know that the physical is getting converted and aspiring for the divine. When sheet, oshna, heat and cold, cold and heat, this doesn't affect us. We want only the divine. When we can endure all the rub and change, but we want the divine. When these very, this very body will begin to aspire then we will slowly the body will get used to the divine Shakti and more and more that will begin to drive it and transmute the cells. 
and take the charge of breath and speech and act. This is the pranayama of Shurabindu Shoka. People ask, what breathing exercises? Nothing. Open to the mother. How is that? No, no, tell us a breathing exercise. Well, when mother takes the charge of breath and speech and act, what more you want? You know the story of the gopis when Udhav goes to teach them yoga. She tells them, you people are crazy. You know, all this worship of Krishna and all this is all craze. You don't know. I'll teach you yoga. See, Krishna has deliberately sent him to make him humble. He thinks he has jnana. He says, you know, you should think of Krishna as per Brahman. But before you can do that, you, you take your breath like this and master your breath. So the gopis say everything is fine, but there is one problem. What is the problem? Since we have given each breath to Krishna, should we take it back and then practice it? <laughs> 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 says, I don't have anything else to do. So when with each breath we remember the mother, this breath becomes a yoga. And she controls she. She controls. She takes care of it. When we offer our life, our breathing, our very everyday <clears throat> acts, then slowly there is a period till which nothing may happen. The divine sees whether, you know, or rather he makes us sincere. He knows how sincere, insincere we are. And there comes a time in the ancient yoga, there used to be the yagna and the acceptance of the yagna. So they used to be offering and then there came a time when the God said, okay, now we accept the yagna and they come down. So for some time, nothing may happen. It's okay. Carry on offering, consecrating. Then a time comes when she says, ah, there I come. And then she takes this charge of breath and speech and act. And life begins to change. And all the thoughts shall be a glow of suns. People often say negative thoughts, negative thoughts. What is the way to take care of them? So some people suggest positive thoughts. So they say, we know it. <laughs> That's not the issue. We know we should think positively. But we can't. The problem is the moment you create duality. Or, you know, nowadays this is the word children use and I just like this word. Uh, no more binaries. Yeah. I don't know whether they use it, use it here. Binaries. You know, good and bad. Racism. It's not a good thing. Binaries like racism. Don't create that kind of, you know. So the moment you speak about positive, there is the negative right under the wings. So you have to, we have to grow into oneness. That is the teaching of the great yogas. Not good and bad. That's a binary. They always fight. You see, the gods and the asuras are all the time fighting in our mythology. <laughs> so... So instead of that, bring the oneness. So what does oneness do? What is the difference? It chases away darkness and it transmutes the positive. We think good is the ultimate good. No, our good also is a shadow. Even this needs to be transmuted into the divine good, which is very different from what we conceive as human good. So both get transmuted under its spell. So the thoughts will spontaneously become a glow of suns because the divine light begins to take charge. And every feeling is celestial thrill. This joy, harmony, ananda which we are seeking all around in Savitri, these lines, O bliss, O radiant fountain of the world's delight. When Ashupati is invoking the divine mother, how does he describe her? O radiant fountain of the world's delight, 
O bliss, whoever dwellest deep hid within, while men seek the outside and never find. This becomes, this is the stuff of our being. We don't have to seek it. And when this is awake, bliss becomes a way of feeling. What for? No reason. So, of course, uh, such a person should not be seen by a conventional psychiatrist. You, see, you seem to be too happy. Is everything okay? Then <laughs> people become little out. <laughs> I shouldn't be too happy, no? Too much happiness is not good. <laughs> As a child, you were taught, don't laugh so much. Because if you laugh so much, sorrow will come, no? <laughs> but it's a different laughter. It's a different joy. Every feeling becomes a celestial feeling. Often a lustrous inner dawn shall come. This dawn is of course the Usha, whom the gods, whom the rishis were invoking. It's the illumination. Now he's not, there's not one dawn. There are successive dawns. As we climb hill after hill in yoga, new dawns arrive. There is a dawn in the mind of the higher mind. There is a dawn of more illuminated mind. Dawn of a revelatory consciousness. Dawn of an intuition. Dawn of different parts in emotions. A deeper glow in the emotional life. It is washed away of the turbulence, of jealousies, of other kinds of crude passions. In its place something more refined. All these are dawns. Even in the very body, the dawn shall come. Often a lustrous inner dawn shall come, lighting the chambers of the slumbering mind. A sudden bliss shall run through every limb, and nature with a mightier presence fill. So this is the yoga about filling our finite with the infinite. Allowing the divine to invade the fields of life and creation with his breath and presence. Thus shall the earth open to divinity. And common natures feel the wide uplift simply because some people are invoking the divine presence. That's a big work. You know, Sometimes people ask, you know, especially people who are staying outside and they feel, you know, they want to get back home and sometimes these thoughts come. Well, wherever we are, we invoke the divine mother's presence. It's a wonderful work to do. It's a full-time work to do. Now what are we doing? We become a bridge between the divine and this earth and this soil. It's so beautiful to become a bridge. That's what this home choir and chanting is about. It's about a collective aspiration. And this aspiration is meant to become a bridge so that that which is beyond gets rooted here in the soil. <clears throat> Illumine common acts with the spirit's ray. And made the deity in common things. Common acts, brush and bath and everything. You know the story of Udar. When Udar asked mother. Mother how am I doing yoga 20 years down the line. I said well okay. Okay. Mother what's missing? Nothing much but you know. Okay what do you do when you wake up? Wake up means. Uh, well I, I go to the bathroom. What do you do there? All question, mother, I pick up the toothpaste and brush my teeth. Okay, how do you brush your teeth? Mother, this way, that way. All wrong. When you go into the bathroom, know that I am with you. When you brush your teeth, know that I am with you. So this is a yoga not just done in some secluded meditative spot. When you drink the tea, mother is drinking the tea with me and can have this small practice can change our life. 
and you know this is the story of Sri Ramakrishna. This when he was uh, Girish Ghos. Some of us may have heard about his life. Girish Ghos was a you know every possible defect of nature, every possible vice he had. Now I am not going to describe it further. <coughs> and he was an actor by profession. So he go, but he had loved. He was drawn towards Sri Ramakrishna. So he goes to him and says, "I like you, but you know I can't follow anything that you say." Who is asking you to follow all this? Says, really? You know what I do. I take wine, I drink, and you know where I sleep and all these things. You're serious about it? Says, yeah. But something I should do is nothing. When you drink, you know that you know I'm there and you are. I'm drinking inside you. That is all I have to do. Whatever I do, he says yes. This is a true story. So he goes. Then he comes back after one week. He says you have made it impossible for me to you know do anything. <laughs> You are a strange fellow. When I drink, I can't enjoy my drink anymore because I, you know, I am giving it to you. What is this? Please take away this. <laughs> Tell me a simpler way. What can be more simple than waking with the mother and sleeping with the mother and walking with the mother and breathing with the mother and eating with the mother and enjoying with the mother and relaxing with the mother and watching a movie with the mother? And yeah, because naturally, that's why in the ashram somebody was saying, "What are the rules in the ashram life?" I don't know, was it here or somewhere? So there are some rules, but you know the golden rule, the only rule that Sri Aurobindo gave. Normally, you have certain do's and don'ts. Sri Aurobindo gave one rule, which which is called as the golden rule. He used the word one golden rule that I recommend for you. And the golden rule was always behave as if the mother is present. looking at you because she is indeed always present one golden rule i would recommend for you always behave as if the mother is looking at you for indeed she is always present look how life changes so that's the yoga so common acts become illumined with the spirit's ray naturally she is watching us and we are doing things in her presence how will we do how will we handle things how will we speak to people how are we going to you know walk on the lawn because she is watching us and meet the deity in common things nature shall live to manifest secret god now this is a profound truth we don't realize it we create a duality the worst binary is world and god god is out there and this is world creation is one thing creator is another nature is different and god is different but what is nature so beautifully it hides god within and through its dance it is trying to express the hidden deity but its feet are stumbling it is not able to capture the dance of krishna and radha so it ends up doing the dance of kali you know that's the interesting part about kali kali enters into this fury and destructive dance mad mad dance where everything gets destroyed in a rampage literally why because this world doesn't reveal the divine presence she is looking for shiva there are many interpretation by the way of this story this is one of them she looking for shiva full of the asuras don't know him the rakshasas don't know him even the gods don't know him even the gods are frightened when the divine mother is on the trampet gauri becomes kali gauri is the fear mother the beautiful radiant mother and here she has 
identifies with dark material. She goes into this dungeon pit, darkest part. That's why she becomes Kali. And she says, I want to discover, where is he? Where have all of you hid? And she's destroying all the forms, changing time to... Then the God said, we are not ready for this fast pace of progress. <laughs> so Shiva goes and says, here I am. All existence is on my breast. And Kali stops dancing. On Shiva's breast stays the eternal dance. So this dance is to become a dance of rapture and delight. When will it be? When nature shall be attuned to the divine within. When our human will is tuned to the divine will. When our thoughts are tuned to the divine light. When our hearts are enamored of the divine delight. <laughs> nature shall live to manifest secret God. The spirit shall take up the human play and not the, you know, another aphorism of Shurabindo where he says, mankind errs in believing that it can perfect society by machinery, by equipment, by institutions, by governments. It's an error. And then he says, no power can save thee from the law of thy being. That which thou art within, that outside thee thou shalt enjoy. You may have everything perfect outwardly, but if this is still living by the ego, it will still suffer. Suffering and misery will find its way. You will not have the other issues, but there will be the issue is inside actually. So this has to be perfected. And then you can be anywhere. There is beauty and bliss. So this is the secret. The spirit shall take up the human play and no more the ego. This earthly life become the life divine. So this is the perfect life we are all seeking on earth, which all the religions prophecy and promise and seek a kingdom of heaven upon earth. Ram Rajya or the, you know, everybody will become awakened one day to the one God. Whatever way we put it, these are clumsy ways in ignorance of wanting the spirit to rule this earth. But it can only happen, not by any external religion or imposition etc. of a belief system, but only when human beings become awake to the deepest self and allow their life to be governed with this truth. So we'll, we can take a break here. Yeah, we can take a five, ten minute break. Yes, then we can have a few questions and then we can have lunch. Is that the protocol or the program? Ajay Bhai? Yeah. I was just going to say that today is a little bit different from our normal program. And in terms of time constraint, I was just going to suggest it's just around 12 now. And rather than having two sessions of question answers, we have it now. Yes. And extend it until everybody is satisfied. And then we have... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so rather than having two sessions. Of yeah. So that's what yesterday we decided that no lunch and then post lunch. So we'll uh, do it now. Do, yes. Only five minutes break only because just to stretch break. out and you know yeah. Yeah. those who would like to stretch out. Yeah. So lunch has been delayed with another thing in mind so that yeah. nobody runs away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what exactly yeah. what I well, told that instead of all that we can close by one fifteen or something like yeah. that yeah. and have lunch. <laughs> Just happened yeah. to be on absolute parallel. Yeah. Same <laughs> yes. 
That's good. Because originally you had eaten lunch. Yeah, lunch, lunch after, after lunch, lunch can do the discussion. No. Yeah. Just a short.